So could it be a problem for T? How much of a problem might it be? And what might the future look like for him if it becomes a problem, given that we know that without treatment, hip displacement can cause pain and changes in motor function? And this is where hip surveillance comes in. Welcome to the Centre of Research Excellence in Cerebral Palsy podcast, where we're giving you access to experts, academics and clinicians working in the management and treatment of cerebral palsy. We broadcast from the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne, Australia. In this episode, we hear from Rachel Tooby, a PhD candidate and physiotherapist from ICRE. Rachel talks about the HIP Surveillance Project, a statewide project that aims to improve health outcomes for young people with cerebral palsy. Rachel puts us right in the picture by introducing T. So T is a four-year-old boy with cerebral palsy. Um, He's spastic quadriplegic, which means four of his limbs are affected. He's GMFCS level four, which is gross motor function classification system level four. Um, So children in this level, as many of you will know, um, children can sit on a chair but may need adaptive seating for trunk control and to maximise hand function. And children may walk short distances with a walker or adult supervision but have difficulty with turning and maintaining balance. They primarily, as they grow older, use a wheelchair as primary form of transport. Um, He's a um, functional mobility scale 111, which means at 550 and 500 metres, he uses a wheelchair primarily or can use a walker assistance from another person for transfers and stepping. He's a manual ability classification system three, so he handles objects with some difficulty and needs help to prepare or modify activities. And in terms of his communication, he's a communication function uh, classification system level two. So we've got lots of systems here, just trying to give you an overview of what he's like. So he's effective sender and receiver of familiar and unfamiliar partners, but can be slow paced at times. T's also been diagnosed with epilepsy and he... Um, lives with his mum, dad and two uh, sisters, one older, one younger. His parents both work, his dad works full-time and mum works part-time and he lives in um, the regional Victorian area of Sale in Gippsland. So um, in terms of T-support network, he um, is involved with early intervention at the Department of um, Ed Specialist Children's Services. He sees a general practitioner and a maternal child health nurse in the community He has a community paediatrician. He um, has also just been referred to the um, Victorian Paediatric Rehab Service at La Trobe and also at Monash. Um, He's got a neurologist at the um, Royal Children's Hospital. His grandparents are involved in his care and he attends writing for the service. So he's a busy little boy. So I'd just like to show you an example of a care map that was actually created by um, a mother of a young boy with special needs in America. Her name's Kristen Lind, and I got this from her blog. And it's quite, um, I think it's quite a fascinating um, picture and a map of all of the care of her son, G. Okay, let's pull back for a second because it's a good idea to check this care map out. We've included a link on our website at crecp.org.au. But for those who can't get to it just now, it's a hand-drawn, multicoloured, complex diagram, kind of like a mind map, starting with G and G's family in the centre, then branching out in all directions to health, legal and financial issues, school and so on. Anyway, take a look and we'll return to Rachel at the Royal Children's Hospital. So let's just think about this as a scenario. 
So I'm just going to frame the presentation in this scenario so it gives a clinical application of it. T's community paediatrician refers him to the Victorian Paediatric Rehabilitation Service for consideration of Botox. He's um, concerned that there's increasing spasticity which is affecting his function, particularly in his legs. He attends his first appointment at the Monash Children's Hospital and he's, there's a, a lot of people in the room. There's T, his family, so his mum and dad, his two sisters, an OT, physio, rehabilitation specialist. And another child in, with CP in the community around Gippsland has just had some reconstructive hip surgery at RCH and his parents asked, does, does our son need to have this hip surgery? It sounds horrible. So we're going to just pause on that question for um, the medical team or the rehabilitation team and talk about what journey we're going to take with T today. So we're going to think about why, why he might need this surgery in, in terms of hip dysplasia in children with cerebral palsy. What might we, we need to do to get him to surgery at the right time? So um, what hip surveillance with cerebral palsy. How we can do this, um, and that's implementing the Australian hip surveillance guidelines. And what we're doing now about it in terms of actual implementation of the guidelines through the Cerebral, uh, Centre for Research Excellence in Cerebral Palsy Hip Surveillance Project. And then we're going to look at the road ahead. So the first logical question, why might T need this surgery? Well, hip displacement in children with CP is a progressive displacement of the femoral head laterally from under the acetabulum. It can cause problems with pain, limited range of movement, and it interferes with function, positioning, personal care, and there are multiple driving factors in cerebral palsy. Hip displacement is expressed as the migration percentage. The migration percentage is the percentage of the femoral head lateral to the acetabular margin on an AP pelvic X-ray. So for, if we work out that there's a migration percentage greater than 30%, these are hips at risk and, there are, and should be referred to orthopaedic surgery. Well, a referral should at least be considered. In terms of why this happens in um, children with cerebral palsy, just briefly I'll show you, talk you through a reminder that cerebral palsy involves a brain lesion, which is an upper motor neuron lesion. So there are positive and negative features of an upper motor neuron lesion, which contribute to musculoskeletal changes. Positive features include spasticity, increased reflexes, and co-contraction of muscles, when the negative features include weakness, fatigability, and sensory deficits. A combination of these positive and negative features can cause changes to the muscles, bones, and joints, which can lead to hip displacement and degeneration of the joint. If we look at the epidemiology around hip displacement in children with cerebral palsy, we can look at three major population studies. Our first one here um, from 2006 was Sue et al. in a very local study. This was done in Victoria with a uh, 1990 to 1992 birth cohort where um, as well as we had a study in Tasmania, very close by as well, and then another study in southern Sweden. And all of these three studies have shown similar results. And that is that Hip displacement incidence was between 27% and 35%, so fairly similar across all of these three studies. And that is um, involving children of all GMFCS levels, so all motor function we see around between 27 and 35% 
um, hip displacement. So that is <clears throat> a migration percentage over 30 to 33%. Okay, I've got to quickly cut in to say yes, there are some phone conference noises in so, the background here, but this part of Rachel's talk can't be missed, so bear with us. Um, worthwhile noting that this incidence of 27 to 35% is not um, across in each of the GMFCS levels. In fact, the incidence increases across the GMFCS levels, meaning those children who have difficulty with standing and walking, so GMFCS level 4 to 5, are most at risk. In fact, these GMFCS 4 and 5 have a risk of between 70 and 90%. In terms of those at GMFCS level 1, it uh, generally spontaneously improves, but in, in the other GMFCS levels, it is progressive. So let's just go back to T, our young boy, with cerebral palsy, um, and think about what is, um, so think about, sorry, his, his gross motor function level, he communicates quite well, and we'll think about what his risk of hip displacement is. Most of us are now thinking, it seems like there's a problem for T, so how do we help him? And what is hip surveillance? Well, hip surveillance is the process of identifying and monitoring the critical indicators of progressive displacement. Hip surveillance is identifying the um, migration percentage using hip x-rays and clinical assessment. It's monitoring over time with x-rays at many points for most people and clinical assessment. And it's also looking for the critical indicators. And in this case, it's migration percentage, function and the presence of scoliosis and pelvic obliquity. So some of the principles of hip surveillance include that the risks of surveillance, so that in involves exposure to radiation through the x-ray procedure, should be relative to the risks of hip displacement. This means that children with greater motor function do not need as frequent monitoring or for as long. We know that migration percentage is the primary outcome and it's a pathway for referral to orthopaedics, but it's not a management or service delivery guideline. And it can be applied to children with cerebral palsy and like conditions. So briefly, I'll just discuss some of the evidence for hip surveillance. There are two significant studies I'd like to refer to, and these are sort of long-term follow-up studies. So we first have Kentish et al., and that was a five-year outcome study of um, statewide hip surveillance for children with cerebral palsy living in Queensland. And this study found that no child who was under hip surveillance progressed to hip dislocation. And then we have another study, Hagland et al., um, who in 2014 uh, published a study which was a 20-year follow-up study, so quite a significant study, which showed that over time um, the incidence of hip dislocation reduced um, due to hip surveillance. So from 8% um, incidence in the early 90s, both birth cohort where there was no formal hip surveillance, to 0.5% for a mid to late 90s birth cohort and then an early 2000s birth cohort which had 0% hip dislocation. There's also been a recent study done by Wurudza and team um, here with the Department of Orthopaedics at the Royal Children's Hospital, and it's just been accepted for publication. And this study looked at the Victorian 1990 to 1992 birth cohort, and the results of this study indicate that the hip doesn't have to be dislocated to be in pain. 
and that pain can be associated with moderate levels of displacement and that the level of hip displacement and the arthritic changes that occur are actually related to whether the child is under hip surveillance or not. And given the field of practice that we're in, we can safely assume that there are some guidelines. And there are. They are available as a poster from the Australasian Academy of Cerebral Palsy and Developmental Medicine website. And there's a booklet as well. Both are linked at our website at crecp.org.au. So if we just go to the key components of the guidelines, as I've already mentioned in terms of the evidence, we know that the frequency of hip surveillance should be related to the risk. So it's different dependent on the GMFCS levels. Um, The guidelines apply um, and consider the GMFCS levels, migration percentage stability, function, leg length discrepancies, gait pattern, pelvic obliquity and scoliosis. Um, These guidelines also talk to resuming surveillance after surgeries happen. So a child may have had surveillance to get them to the point of referral to orthopaedics, but then following the surgery, it is important that they resume um, surveillance. There's also information on transitions. So for some children, (coughs) particularly of GMFCS level 3 to 5, that surveillance should continue after skeletal maturity. And there's also some information in the guidelines about classifying skeletal maturity in the hip. So let's just go back to T and his family. So we know that um, he's quite likely to have hip displacement or for it to be a problem for him in the future. So the the team asked, well, when was T's last hip x-ray? And the parents state, well, it was when he was younger, probably around 18 months older, and I think it was with the community paediatrician. So the team do an assessment and order a pelvic x-ray. And then the family have a series of questions. They, th- they ask, well, what were the results of his first x-ray? We never heard of them. How do we find about, out about the results of the, this x-ray today? When does he have to have another x-ray? How will I find out if he's due for another x-ray? Where will he have this next x-ray? Who is responsible for monitoring his And the list goes on. <laughs> They're just a few of the questions that they may have had the guts to ask. And this is where the Centre of Research Excellence in Cerebral Palsy's Hip Surveillance Project comes in. Because situations like T's are not uncommon in Victoria. Although health professionals have been um, monitoring hips of children with cerebral palsy for, year, uh, for years, sorry, there's currently no comprehensive or systematic statewide program for hip surveillance. And we know now from some recent studies that access to hip surveillance is linked to geographical location. So the same study that I mentioned before by Wurutsa et al, looking at the 1990 to 1992 birth cohort, also found that hip morphology and pain outcomes were intimately linked to hip surveillance. And those 14% in that study who did not have formal hip surveillance experienced poor outcomes um, and were generally living in outer suburban or regional areas. So the aims of this hip surveillance program are to develop and implement a framework for hip surveillance for all Victorian children for cerebral palsy. We want it to be a system that is efficient, sustainable and well accepted by families and health professionals. And we hope it will include protocol and procedures for enabling routine hip surveillance, mechanisms for reminders and avenues for follow-up when children do not receive their surveillance in a timely manner.
I'd like to just introduce you to three key concepts that have helped shape the HIP surveillance project to date. The first is design thinking. And this is a human-centered and collaborative approach to problem solving that is creative, iterative, and practical. It considers the viability, feasibility, and desirability in designing a product or service for people. The second here, and many of you will be well-versed in this second concept, is evidence-informed practice, which means ensuring the best health practice guided not only by the best research, but also patients' values, expectations, and individual clinical expertise. The third is knowledge translation, which involves a dynamic and iterative process bringing together distribution and application of knowledge to improve health. So it inherently involves policymakers and user needs to come together to um, translate knowledge. This project has involved two key steps, framework development and framework implementation. So our first step in terms of framework development has involved a survey of health professionals and, a, and parent focus groups. And the framework implementation is what we will discuss at the end of the presentation and what is coming in the future. So the survey of um, health professionals was done to understand the current practice of hip surveillance for children with cerebral palsy in Victoria. We wanted to explore facilitators and barriers experienced by health professionals when implementing HIP surveillance and get insight into the answers um, of T's family, which are common questions asked by parents. So just to refresh your memory on some of those questions, the answers to these questions vary significantly for families with cerebral palsy in Victoria currently. Every wide-reaching project experiences some challenges. So what were some of the challenges here? Well, we found um, that remembering to do hip surveillance can be a challenge. We found that having access to facilities and services is important to enable the process. We found that collaboration and communication between the team around the child is imperative to successful hip surveillance. Knowledge is vital but needs to be coupled with action and the shared responsibility between medical teams, paediatrician and families. So, for example, paediatricians might um, identify themselves as the doers of hip surveillance, the person that makes referrals for x-rays and takes action on the results, but hip surveillance is about more than just ordering an x-ray and the need to support parents and physiotherapists is important. For example, as well, physiotherapists were identifying themselves as important facilitators of hip surveillance. Researchers, clinicians and other professionals have been involved in the design of this project. But what about the families of children with cerebral palsy? We've conducted five focus groups so far with a total of 23 parents from across Victoria. We ran two face-to-face -face, uh, focus groups, which are held here in metropolitan Melbourne, and three teleconference <coughs> focus groups at a variety of times so families that work um, were able to um, attend as well. Um, the data, as we just finished completing the, uh, having the focus groups, the data hasn't been analysed yet, but it's been nice to see through the process that we have been seeing similar gaps have been identified as in the health professional survey. So we're seeing that a lot of the um, key issues or facilitators are experienced by both health professionals and families.
So let's just take it back to T and his family. After a challenging experience getting an x-ray, they return home to res- uh, await the results of an x-ray. Um, the VPRS team, in the meantime, the VPRS team measure and evaluate the x-ray and they send a report to the community paediatrician um, as well as the Latrobe, so the local paediatric rehab service, and communic- to then go on and communicate the results and the plan with the parents. His family are informed of the results of the next paediatrician appointment. So in terms of his migration percentage, they are able to find the results of his x-ray at 18 months. So in terms of looking at these results, what is his ongoing hip surveillance plan? So in terms of his plan, we can see here that his migration percentage has increased and it's nearing that 30% mark. Um, It's not quite hit there, particularly on that right side. So, and because his hip um, on the right side, the migration percentage has increased there over 10%, we consider his hips unstable and that his next hip surveillance episode should be in six months. But questions remain from his family in terms of his ongoing hip surveillance. So things like where will he have it, um, who will continue to be responsible, some of those questions do still remain. So what are we doing in terms of developing the framework? Well, we're going to apply the lessons we've learnt from the health professional survey and the focus groups to develop our framework. There are a number of obstacles and challenges in the landscape here in Victoria, which might give an idea of what other places are like and of how complex and difficult this issue of hip surveillance can be. So what next? The road ahead will involve selecting and tailoring and implementing solutions to work. So those, we've got the knowledge from families and health professionals and now it's time to implement them. I want to monitor the use of the database as well as knowledge in the um, broader community of it, evaluate outcomes and sustain, and make sure it's a sustainable system. Thank you for listening to another podcast from the Centre of Research Excellence in Cerebral Palsy at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute. We record live at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne. You can find links from this episode and much more at our website, crecp.org.au. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast using your favourite podcast app. And you might like to check out CRE Training Lab, a podcast for early to mid-career researchers and PhD students. Next time on the CRECP podcast, we've got Professor Peter Rosenbaum giving an update on the F-words and disability. This was a Trixie Studio production. Find out more at trixie.xyz.com.